in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, which we've come to in our study, Solomon is looking out at the affairs of man as he navigates this world, as each one of us does, and he's thinking and he's wrestling through different things. Whether it's the injustice that he sees in the world, or the wrong priorities in the workplace, the dangers of travel on the road, or even the sordid politics of the palace. Life under the sun can be very discouraging and disheartening. And it's as if Solomon goes along with people in these different arenas, and then he shares his observations of what he learned as he does so. Uh, The terminology, I looked around, means that this isn't theoretical. It's not something that he's dreamed up in a classroom. This is the reality right where he lives. He's not an outside observer. He's experiencing these things for himself. Last week we talked about injustice and how uh, precisely where we would expect righteousness to be, such as the court of law, that is where we find wickedness. And Solomon comforted himself knowing that God will bring every matter to light and he'll judge everything in his perfect time. Before we get to today's text, I'd like to uh, say a little bit more about that idea of injustice and how God is going to make it right and sort of close the loop on that topic for now. Solomon brought this up in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Here are the verses that we looked at last week. He says, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. So that's where we were last week. And Solomon's not going to leave this topic of injustice completely. uh, Because even as we would look at chapter 5, verse 8, a verse that we'll look at in just a few weeks, it says this, If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. And we'll talk about what all of that means in a few weeks, but we see that he's, he's cycling through some of these things. He's leaving a topic, and then he's coming back and talking more about it. I feel compelled to say more about this topic, because some of you, I am certain, have been mistreated and abused in some ways. And I'm certain of this, not because I know the details of every one of your stories, but what I do know is that this is a sin-cursed world, and people are mistreated, and God's people, we're not immune to that. We cannot change what has happened to us in the past, but we can change our reaction to it or how we view it. If we respond rightly, even to the wrongs done to us, we'll turn what seems to be disadvantages to advantages and we'll impact positively those around us. Instead of a a woe is me or a self-pity mentality, we would ask questions like, how can I leverage what God has brought into my life for his kingdom and for his glory? And it helps to know that God is going to make it right in the end, doesn't it? Doesn't it help to know that? couple passages for our consideration along this line. Turn to Romans chapter 2. 
beginning in verse 5. Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Paul writes to the church at Rome. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Hopefully that's all of us that fit that category. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So all will be judged. God is going to be fair in his judgment. He's not going to be bribed like a, a, a partial judge who's able to be bribed. And, and skew justice in that way, he's going he's gonna to judge impartially. But note that Paul, as Paul writes that, that's a future judgment. Not everything here is going to be made right here. But it will be made right in the end. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Beginning at verse 6. <clears throat> and if you've been wronged in your life, as most of us probably have at one time or another unjustly, take great comfort in this verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well. But notice again, this is a future event. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. So there's a, a judgment that is going to come from God. But how do we respond to these things? Well, staying in our lane, not trying to, to take on problems that God never intended for us to take on. That's what leads to rest. It's best to, to rest in God's perfect judgment. He always judges rightly. When we do this, when we try to take on more than we should, it leads to unrest. Turn to Psalm 131. Psalm 131, 
psalmist says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. What does he do instead? Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. There's a very precious picture here of one of a child who is trusting in their parents. They're not at unrest because they're not involved in things too difficult for them. It's God's place to judge. Often he asks us to leave it for him to do. And so what that means is if you are a fixer who thinks that you can fix every situation, you're going to be frustrated in this world. Because some things God allows to continue, but he is going to judge it in the end. It's not that anyone's getting away with anything. God has a perfect time for judgment as well. And so we can rest in God and in his future judgment of the wicked and those who have mistreated and abused us as well. And we can do this because we realize uh, God's grace and mercy even to us as well. Chuck Swindoll wrote this. Under the sun perspective says, I earn what I get. That's what people think just looking at things horizontally. He says, above the sun perspective says, you get what you will never deserve and can never earn forgiveness, eternal life, grace, hope, life beyond the grave. It's much easier to act with grace and mercy to others when you think of yourself and see yourself as the biggest sinner in the room. That's the right perspective to have. Remember, that was the perspective of uh, the, the tax collector, even as he approached and the Pharisee said, I, I'm glad I'm not like him. We remember that we are recipients of God's grace and his mercy. That helps us to have a right perspective here. And so as Solomon continues to consider the oppression that happens under the sun, it, it leaks into chapter four here. It seems now that this can be applied to the business world. Because he contemplates whether it would be better to die or, or even never be born. And it's understandable that there would be people who at times would conclude this. They might think this way. Because there are people who have experienced incomprehensible tragedy and abuse at the hands of others. The scripture doesn't minimize those things or act like that is not a big deal. People do suffer those things. It's reality in this world. But even as Solomon thinks his way through this, death is still considered an enemy. Even though it may relieve earthly suffering, Solomon also considers not being born as more desirable. He had closely looked at the oppressors in the previous verses, and now his focus is shifting to the oppressed. And as I said before, we're going to apply this to the marketplace in business, in our workplaces, because that's where he goes in verses 4 through 6. And so as he speaks about the oppressed, you can almost hear his heart 
of compassion. You can almost hear Solomon's heart for people as emotion pours out into the pages of our Bible. He's not saying these things as a a disconnected observer. It grieved him to see servants oppressed by masters, working hard but never advancing, people being taken advantage of by greedy supervisors who care more about their own kingdom than anyone or anything else, debtors who are oppressed by cruel creditors who impose stifling interest rates, those who are oppressed by unjust elected officials and judges. Above the sun, righteousness reigns. Under the sun, it does not seem to be so. Solomon had earlier said that there is a time for weeping, and if he could, he would weep with all those who are oppressed by those who have power over them. And by the way, mourning with and for the oppressed is proper because they can't help themselves. They had no recourse for equity and fair treatment. They're at the mercy of those who are above them, those who are mistreating them and abusing them. It's a grievous thing to see those in power misuse their power to inflict pain and suffering rather than serving the the common public good. So Solomon then shifts to those who work with priorities that are out of balance. Why do they work? They work to stick it to their neighbor. Note the word rivalry in verse 4. And finally in our text, Solomon brings some balance to, to how a follower of Christ should view work with work-life balance. I don't know, for those of you who are still working, if your company talks about this a lot, my company is forever these days talking about work-life balance. And this terminology has become very common, especially since um, in the years following COVID, work-life balance. So I'm actually stealing this term from my title today as we seek this balance in life. The title of today's message is work-life balance. Work-life balance. And so just the first six verses of Ecclesiastes 4 this week, and Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 4 next week. And so read with me this morning from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Obviously Solomon says some some interesting and, and difficult things here. And so we'll seek to unpack that in our time together this morning. As we do so, let's uh, ask the Lord again to help us. Father, help us to 
understand truly what Solomon is saying, and more importantly, what you're saying through your servant, through your word. And I pray that the messenger here today, um, the one that you've called to preach here, would be one who would be seeking your mind and your will on all things. God, we don't want people to teach your word with an agenda of their own. We just want your pure, unadulterated word. It's my desire to um, proclaim that today as your messenger. But I pray that not one of us would escape whatever your word has to bear in our individual lives. That we wouldn't quench the spirit of God, but that we would be quickened by you, by your word. And I pray today, Lord, if there's anyone here who just needs a word of encouragement, that you would provide that for them today. Lord, we know that this world can be a very discouraging place. But we have a great hope in heaven. I pray that each of us would learn more and more how to point each other to the hope that we have. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the Lord who gave himself for us. I pray we would learn more and more what it means to point each other to Jesus. Encourage us by your word today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, point number one of this message entitled Work-Life Balance is, in verse one, power under the sun out of balance. Power under the sun, out of balance. <clears throat> Solomon sees oppression here realistically. He, he uses this term, he says, I looked again, I, I reconsidered, or I turned back. He's returning to a previous thought pattern or subject uh, that he had already addressed. He's reconsidering all the acts of oppression the tyranny which is being done under the sun. And this is completely horizontal. He's looking at these circumstances as they play out here only. The heinous acts which have been committed in this world. Now Israel's judicial system under which Solomon reigned was God-ordained and justice would be served if followed, but like any other system under the sun, it could be corrupted. So the justice system spoke of, of how people interacted, including their business dealings. You see that all throughout uh, the Pentateuch, the first five, um, particularly Exodus through Deuteronomy, that there was much to say about how people deal with one another. And yet it could be a corrupted system, and it was, and it is today as well. So he says, I saw the tears of the oppressed. The weeping of the victims who are victims of crimes against humanity. Swindoll says this, what he really sees is a body of people who have most of the money, the influence, the power, and therefore the control of others. And what Solomon saw was anything but pleasant. It's anything but pleasant. And so then he talks about the oppressed who had no comforter. Uh, in Greek, the, the word comforter is parakoleo. Uh, you might remember that the Holy Spirit is called a, a paraclete, a, a comforter, one who comes alongside and brings comfort. They had no one to comfort them, no one to pity them, no one to console, to, to put their arm around them and tell them that it's going to be okay. And he says there's no one to comfort twice. He does that for emphasis. There's this continual suffering which needs comfort, but it continues to go without any comforter. They were grieved. 
at their wits' end. But nobody was there to comfort them, which even makes it more difficult. He says, on the side of their oppressors was power. Uh, The oppressors, the violators, those who used and took advantage of others. They had all the power. They had all the might. They were the influential ones. The oppressors have all the advantages. And the oppressed are powerless to change anything. And this is lamentable. Not much has changed over the centuries, it seems. Job 35.9, Elihu, which is the youngest of the speakers in the book of Job, said this, because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry for help because of the arm of the mighty. That's the oppression of those who are being oppressed. In another place, the Lord looked for justice among his people Israel. In Isaiah 5.7, speaking of Jehovah, then he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So even as he was looking for justice and there was this bloodshed, there comes a time in Israel's history where grief without, without comfort becomes a punishment. It becomes his judgment upon his people. Look, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 16. <clears throat> Jeremiah 16, beginning in verse 5. Jeremiah 16, beginning in verse 5. For thus says the Lord, do not enter a house of mourning, or go to lament, or to console them. For I have withdrawn my peace from this people, declares the Lord, my loving kindness and my compassion. So they're going to go comfortless, because that's God's judgment. Verse 6. Both great men and small will die in this land. They will not be be buried, they will not be lamented, nor will anyone gash himself or shave his head for them. These are acts of lamentation or grief. Men will not break bread in mourning for them to comfort anyone for the dead, nor give them a cup of consolation to drink for anyone's father or mother. Moreover, you shall not go into a house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am going to eliminate from this place before your eyes and in your time the voice of rejoicing and the voice of gladness, the voice of the groom and the voice of the bride. Jeremiah also spoke lamentations in the book of Lamentations. So Lamentations 1.9 says this, Her uncleanness, speaking of, of the nation, her uncleanness was in her skirts. She did not consider her future. Therefore she has fallen astonishingly. She has no comforter. See, O Lord, my affliction, for the enemy has magnified himself. And the nation becomes a a place where there is no one to comfort in their difficulty. Lamentations 1.16, For these things I weep. My eyes run down with water, because far from me is a comforter, one who restores my soul. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. This is why, by the way, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. You ever heard that term? It's why he's called the weeping prophet, because he's weeping over. Israel, and there's no comfort that seems to be coming. 
And yet we can be encouraged, though, that God will respond to the call of the needy in his time as they continue to cry out to him. Listen to this promise in Psalm 12, verse 5. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, Jehovah says, now I will arise. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. Often comfort doesn't come. Deliverance doesn't come when we want it to, but God will do so in his time. Well, as we consider verse 1 of of Ecclesiastes 4, there's much to be lamented in this out-of-balance system. We lament over those who practice such injustice, oppress those who are uh, under them, who they have power over. We lament over the innocent, innocent victims who pay the price in this. And we lament over those who could bring comfort, but they refuse to do so. And Solomon looks at it all. He looks at this whole system of oppression, those who are comfortless, and he laments. And that leads him to say some pretty shocking statements that are also out of balance. And so point number two today from verses two and three is there's some out of balance reactions to injustice. Out of balance reactions to injustice. Look with me at Ecclesiastes 4, verse 2. He says, So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. So the first out of balance reaction here is I'd be better off dead. I'd be better off dead. People would be better off dead. I congratulated the dead who were already dead. The word congratulated means praised aloud. This isn't something he's muttering under his breath. It's a public proclamation. The ESV uh, translates this, thought more fortunate. The NIV, instead of congratulated, it says, I declared happier. They're better off. The ones who had been destroyed more than the living who are still living. And this was Job's sentiment. Remember, as we had our scripture reading, that was his sentiment at first to the great suffering that he endured. Listen to Job 10, 18. It says, why then, and here he's asking God, why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. Job's not the only one to wrestle with these things in scripture. Asaph Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Elijah, all wrestled similarly. And Asaph, in the 73rd Psalm, as he wrestled with these things, he, he then went into the sanctuary, and that's when all of the perspective changed. He was wrestling with the success and how the, the, uh, the wicked seemed to be prospering until he went into the sanctuary. Folks, it changes when we go beyond our current present circumstances, when we look behind that or beyond that. Solomon in chapter 2 had already said that he hated life as he sought satisfaction unsuccessfully under the sun. Later in chapter 7, verse 1, he's going to say a day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. A life where one is oppressed can easily lead to thinking that we would be better off dead. 
but that's not proper thinking. It's important for us to note that Solomon is not referring to suicide here. That wasn't an option for a Jew. Uh, In fact, Swindoll writes, an alien concept in the mind of the Jews. Surely I wish I could say the same today, where suicide is so much more common and rampant and even considered um, a viable option. But I don't know if you've ever thought about that. this. I can't even imagine the shock of somebody who takes their own life thinking that they are going to end the pain that they're dealing with only to learn that it is just the beginning of eternal suffering in hell. Surely it's a lie from Satan. Rather than suicide here, Solomon's referring to an attitude where death is more appealing than the present circumstances of life, the suffering and mistreatment. Solomon, when considering life under the sun only, concludes that it is vanity and chasing after the wind, not worth living. He thinks the one the ones who have exited the stage of this world, as it were, are better off. He concludes that better death is better than life when looking at things under the sun only. Now at this point, I don't think he's saying this with a heavenly perspective at all. Now, sometimes we'll make a statement at the death of a believer and say that they are much better off. And that's 100% true. That is absolutely true. Somebody who dies in Christ is better off than being in this earth. Surely they leave behind a void. But we shouldn't feel sorry for them. They are now doing exactly what they were created to do, and they will do so for all eternity. So in that sense, it's absolutely that they are better off dead. But that's not Solomon's perspective in this at all. And by the way, it's not that we should have a death wish either. But death to a believer is a graduation, not a degradation. Death to a believer is a graduation, not a degradation. So the second out-of-balance reaction after being better off dead is better off unconceived. He says better off than both of them, the dead and the living. What's a more favorable thing, more pleasant or pleasurable experience, is the one who has never existed Those who have never been. Why? Because he says they've never seen the evil activity. They've never considered the affliction of those who are uh, suffering. They've never experienced the misery of this world. The evil activity or actions that have been done under the sun. By tyrants and oppressors. In Ecclesiastes 6.3, he bluntly says, better the miscarriage than he. This life can weigh on us so much that never being born can sometimes be appealing also. To have to see or experience the evil works of wicked people who have the power to do justly but rather commit acts of injustice can be more than we can bear sometimes. There's so much wrong in this world. There's so much affliction, so much oppression, so many things here that are just wicked. What kind of world are we living in? Do I really want to bring children into this world? Perhaps they would be better off not being born. 
It's not a completely new sentiment here, even as we think those things through. Uh, Luke 23, 29, Jesus said this, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never never nursed. A very similar sentiment here. But for Solomon, you can hear the discouragement when he says these things. And if he stayed there, he might be swallowed up in despair. But he doesn't remain there. He's going to bring balance to all of this. But for now, let's move on to point number three. And we'll see in verse four that out-of-balance motivation leads to meaninglessness in work. Out-of-balance motivation leads to meaninglessness in work. And as we see that word meaningless, uh, again, we remember that that, that's really just the word vanity. You could have said leads to the vanity in work. I chose meaninglessness. The repeated phrase, striving after the wind, introduces this uh, subsection that starts here in uh, verse 4. And it ends in verse 16, where we'll end next week as well. So striving after the wind almost acts as like a bookmark, bookends for this section. It starts it and it ends it. And by the way, this section uses the word better and the word vanity frequently, and and also meaninglessness. It kind of makes this a theme. So the out-of-balance motivation is making work all about self-promotion. Making work all about self-promotion. He says, I have seen, again, this is an intentional look. He's reconsidering, and in some ways he's picking up where he left off in chapter 2, verses 18 through 26, when he talked about the meaningless of work. And he had formed some opinions back then about work, Now he's going to come back and he's going to reconsider and build on this and continue on down this topic. So he talks about every labor and every skill which is done. The word labor here can mean travail, but it also has the idea of grievous. The word skill, uh, NIV translates it achievement. It means success or advantage. Here we have someone who's not only a hard worker, but he or she is skillful in what they do, competent and driven. The work ethic and their acumen was to be admired. But when he considered their motivation, it disappointed Solomon. Because rather than producing things to make the world a better place, they worked and used their abilities, their gifts, their talents, simply to try to advance themselves, trying to get ahead. They've been sucked in with a dog-eat-dog mentality. He's not speaking here, by the way, against healthy competition between companies in a free market system, which, by the way, encourages, free market system encourages such competition for the good of consumers, right? Really, it's for the good of people who buy from those companies. No, he's talking about one-on-one rivalry, infighting, carnal attitude of steamrolling anyone who gets in their way on the rise to the top. 
In my younger days, I was ultra competitive, overly so. I hated to lose. I was a very sore loser. But that touches on what Solomon is saying here. Now, I trust that, and I testify that God has worked in me quite a bit at this point. Not that I'm perfected, but I'm growing. But that's the idea of this ultra-competitive nature that this person would have. So it says, a result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. Rivalry is a Hebrew word which can be translated zeal. So it can have a positive or a negative connotation. And if that's the case with the word, what dictates which one you look at? Well, it's context. And here it dictates a very negative sense. And so this word can also mean, this word translated rivalry, can also mean envy or jealousy. Envy or jealousy with a neighbor. This word can mean associate, a companion, a friend, or a co-worker. This is the idea of working to keep up with the Joneses. To stay competitive, not let a co-worker get a leg up on you. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And if you don't bite, you're going to be swallowed up by others. That's the sentiment here. Not sure if you're aware of this, but there is a fair amount of backbiting and manipulating that happens within the business world. Scheming, plotting against one another. And it makes you wonder how often behind the scenes you've been uh, the one who's been schemed against and manipulated. But probably we're better off not knowing answer to that question if you're receiving recognition if you're hard working you have a level of ingenuity it will not necessarily make you popular at work by the way this kind of envy led to the first murder because Cain killed his brother do you remember why because his work wasn't approved but Abel's sacrifice was Perhaps you've been a victim of these things, and you know about it. How do you handle that? Well, again, we can't fix all these things, but we have a mighty God who's able to protect us from wrong. And we take great hope in the fact that anything we suffer has gone through God's hands. Jameson Fawcett and Brown writes, Prosperity, which men so much covet, is the very source of provoking oppression. Competition isn't always wrong. It can be helpful. Even rivalry between teams and schools has its place. But when it gets ugly, sin is the reason. There are those who will lie, cheat, and steal to climb the corporate ladder. Solomon says, and for what? For what? This happens when people only see what's under the sun. And so that's where he goes next. He says, this this out-of-balance motivation is vanity and striving after wind. It's vanity. This word means emptiness, transitory. Uh, I I like to use the NIV word, meaningless. Meaningless. Chasing the air. Even success that comes with hard work doesn't prove lasting, doesn't give lasting satisfaction. 
Solomon had experienced his share of success, and yet he too was bored. Hence why he felt the need to take on all of these projects like gardens and pools and palaces. There's an emptiness often for those who make it to the top. Solomon is a king. He's not looking at all this from the ground up, looking up. He is from the vantage point of one who is at the top. And he's writing to successful businessmen, physicians with growing practices, high-stakes lawyers who argue the biggest cases, powerful executives of Fortune 500 companies, and really anyone who is having any sort of success at work also ought to take heed of his words. Because there's always the next project. The fiscal, next fiscal year is always right around the corner. The next merger or acquisition, the next victorious sales campaign. Envy can cause us to look around at everyone else and wish that our circumstances were their circumstances. Everyone else has it better, so I'm going to spend my time chasing what they have. Using work for self-promotion, Solomon says, it's meaningless. Chasing the wind, it's out of balance. When we come to verse 5 of chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, we see point number 4, out of balance reaction to out of balance work motivation. Follow that with me. Out of balance reaction to out of balance work motivation. Because he moves on from one who is ambitious and gifted to one who has no ambition at all. The fool who, who harms himself. The fool folds his hands. The word fool here, it, literally it means stupid or silly one. And he's caused, called this because he, he folds or he clasps his hands and consumes his own flesh. Uh, the word consume means he devours his own flesh. He eats his own body. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, some of these cross-references might help. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Proverbs 6, 10 and 11. Proverbs 24, verse 33 is a similar verse, but then 34 adds to this. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. This one is refusing to work, and therefore they are, are receiving the consequences of their laziness. Matthew Henry writes, Idleness is a sin that is its own punishment. Idleness is a sin that is its own punishment. Solomon warns, not to be overly competitive with rivalry with your neighbor, but this is the overreaction, overreaction where someone says, I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to live off the land instead. But when they say they are going to live off the land, what they really mean is they're going to live off of other people who work. That's why Paul would say in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either 
because there were those in Thessalonica who had said, the Lord is coming soon, I don't have to work anymore, I'm just going to sit here and wait for him to return. He says, if they're not working, they shouldn't be eating. So what Solomon seems to be referring to here is someone, uh, someone who is lazy, and in their idleness, they take from others. But then they're also never satisfied either. They end up cannibalizing themselves rather than going out and earning their way. So if Solomon is opposed to those who work out of rivalry and self-promotion, and he's opposed to one who refuses to work, where's the balance? Where's the balance? Well, that's where we see him give that balance in verse 6. Work-life balance leads to rest. Work-life balance leads to rest. Verse 6. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. One hand or, or one palm that's full of rest. The word full can have the idea of a multitude or abundance. The word rest is is a word for rest or restfulness. It, it can mean quietness. The NIV translates it tranquility. That paints the picture pretty well. Right? Just, just a, a sense of tranquility where there's nothing. Uh, you think of tranquility sometimes uh, on, a, on a river where there's not a lot of waves and a lot of agitation. It's just tranquil. So he says, better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind is one fist with rest. It's a more pleasant experience than two hands full of labor. Again, this, this expression, labor, it has to do with wearying effort. Also can have the idea of misery here. And it's because with those two fists full, and all of the wearying effort comes a whole lot of anxiety and strife. Comes with it a whole lot of problems. We're looking at some similar verses from the Proverbs. Proverbs 15, verses 16 and 17. Uh, Solomon writes, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a dish, verse 17 of Proverbs 15, better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. Uh, so he's basically like saying, you're better off with a, a pot of vegetable soup where there's love than the juiciest steak you've ever had if, it's, if it includes hatred of those who are around you. Proverbs 16.8, better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Work-life balance leads to rest. A couple quick closing points of life, life application and we're done today. Number one, Look for opportunities to comfort the powerless. Do you think that there are people in this world today that are powerless? That could use comfort?
comfort. Just a word of encouragement. How much, just a word, can help somebody in that position? Say, well, I can't really think of uh, an opportunity to do that. Pray and ask God. Show you if there's some situation where you could just help somebody who is powerless and bring comfort to a situation. Look for opportunities to comfort the powerless. Then secondly, contemplate your own work-life balance. Contemplate or think about your own work-life balance. Solomon encourages balance between some out-of-balance ways. And somewhere between self-advancing workaholism and laziness is the balance. Swindoll writes, one handful of contentment and responsible living is better than two fists clawing, scraping, striving, pushing, pulling their way to the top. I mentioned that our company talks a lot about work-life balance these days. What Solomon says here supports the idea that work should not be our life. That is vanity and it's meaningless. Does your work consume you so that you have never have time with the Lord? Does it squeeze out times of rest and refreshment? If you answer yes to those questions, your life is out of balance. If having both hands full costs you mental and physical health, is it really worth it to you? Excessive striving for more, never being content, being a a workaholic is not the way that pleases God. Often it is self uh, selfish ambition that motivates this. And, and in some ways it's selfish because, I don't know, we don't think this way, but if we get ahead of our neighbor, he's the one then who actually experiences loss. It's kind of like how people say there's no free lunch. It costs somebody something. So just reflect upon your own work-life. Now, thirdly, be content. And this goes right along with this. Be content with your place in life and rest in God. Be content with your place in life and rest in God. Matthew Henry said this, Let us by honest industry lay hold on the handful that we may not want necessaries. He's saying we do want to get the handful, so we're not a burden to others but not grasp at both the hands full, which will create us vexation of spirit. That's the balance there. Those who can't live on little rightly would not be able to live with much rightly either. That's the lesson where Paul says in uh, Philippians 3, I believe it is, he says, I have learned in everything to be content. Well, it's so interesting that he says, I had learned. What that tells me, what that tells us, is that he wasn't naturally content. He had to learn how to do that, and we do too. There's a vanity that comes from trying to make work the thing which one lives for. It's just like everything else that Solomon has tried to say 
tried to explore and see if, if one can find satisfaction in this thing alone. Life was not meant to be satisfying with anything that we would put as a top priority unless we're living for Christ first. That's a life that's satisfying. Trying to put anything else in that place will not satisfy. So be content with where God has put you. And then finally, this morning, point number four, rest in the finished work of Christ. Rest in the finished work of Christ. We should certainly strive to work hard in his work out of a desire to serve the Lord, not because we want to outdo somebody else. We do work and we do seek to do things that God has given us to do. But even this can turn into making how we relate to God works-based rather than how we really ought to relate to God. And in some sense, that too would be um, work-life being out of balance. Because our relationship with God is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross alone. It's not based on our works You can't add to it. You can't take away from the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's only trusting in his righteous sacrifice alone on the cross that makes you right with God. And so even in our relationship with the Lord, even in our our spiritual walk with him, we need to set our own ambition down things which we think qualify us to be right with God. And we need to set those things down and instead put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And that's how we're going to find rest for our souls. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's not because of any work that you did. It's because you put your faith and trust in him. And we all say amen and agree to that. But do you realize also that to, to continue to have the favor of God is also not based on works. We relate to God based on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone at salvation and all through life. Now, are there things that God has called us to do and commanded us to do and not doing those things displease him? Yes, that is true. But when we relate to God, we relate to him always on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And in that sense, we never lose his favor. We always have the same favor of God that he has for his son. Oh my. What an amazing truth that is to consider. And so rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for just the ways that you unpack truths for us. Your word is inexhaustible. You've buried jewels all throughout scripture. And we're we're just amazed when we can have these jewels set before us and start to see them in in their true beauty in the glimmer of a diamond and the shimmering of gold and the translucence of rubies. 
And your word is a treasure trove for us. And it's beautiful. And it's life-giving. And it's praiseworthy. What a privilege we have to come and hear your word and read it for ourselves. It's a privilege that many in this world today would love to have, and yet they don't have a Bible in their language. Or they don't have Bibles. Maybe they have one page of a Bible, and others in the village have other pages. We are so blessed here to have your very word. Give us a passion for it, a passion for truth. Our lives would change through your word. And I pray that you would help us to balance these things, Lord, in life. Surely you want us to work. The message of Ecclesiastes isn't to stop working, but it's to work for the right things and in the right ways. To be a blessing to others. As Ephesians says, to have to give to someone else. That's part of the reason we work, so that we have to give to other people. And I thank you, Lord, that you've worked in our hearts as a church to be generous, Lord. I think even as we pray about this Thursday and the opportunity to share some of what we have with our missionaries this fall, help us to do so with wisdom and that it would impact people for your kingdom all around the world. And I pray that you would help us to do the works that you've given us to do. Your word says that we should work while, while it is the day, because night is coming where no one will work. Help us to work for your kingdom and be found faithful to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.